Today on Ag News Daily. You know, take the RFS at the face value of what it was meant to be and uh, really, really work hard to uh, implement it in the way Congress intended. That's really all we're asking, and, and we kind of believe it's a simple, simple uh, ask. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, still at the Farm Progress Show. As you can hear in the background, there's a lot of activity, even for the last day. And I am joined, of course, by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, how are you doing? I'm good, Mike. How about you? You know, I, I'm honestly, I'm getting kind of tired. My legs are tired. My my jaw is tired from talking to people. The Farm Progress Show, this is one heck of an event every year. You're just not used to the physical activity, are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. You know, we were talking about people with uh, golf carts here at the Farm Progress Show and about how maybe there's too many of them. But now I'm thinking maybe I want to be on <laughs> a golf cart next year. Nah, I like the walking. I think it's good for you. Yeah, that's good. So, Delaney, you are not the Farm Progress Show. You're no. up in Minnesota. How do crops look along the road? Uh, you know, they're looking, they still got some green in them. Soybeans look really good. Corn still got a little green. Looking like they're uh, going to be ready to go soon, though. I'd say a couple of weeks. Yeah, harvest, harvest is certainly moving right along. It's getting closer and closer up here in the northern parts mm-hmm. of the Corn Belt. Well, you know, we'll be talking harvest quite a bit this next week here as we pick up more interviews from the Farm Progress Show. We talked to the folks from Agco earlier today about their new Ideal Combine. We talked to the folks at Tribine, got an update from their founder, which is pretty cool. We'll play that next week. But today we are going to talk corn. We're going to talk policy with Kevin Ross, who's on the National Corn Growers Association. We're going to hear a little bit more from our friends at CAMSO. And I've also got a couple of clips from our friend, Secretary Sonny Perdue. Oh, our friend, huh? Are we calling him our friend? Well, yeah. I mean, he's just a friend who doesn't really know us yet. (laughs) Oh, but he will, won't he? Absolutely, Delaney. But first of all, what's the news? What do you got for us today? Let's talk about some crop-related news, and I want to start off here with some dicamba news. The EPA, or let's see, let me me back check here just a little bit. So the court case currently going on about the usage of dicamba and Monsanto's usage of dicamba. So lawyers from the EPA, from EPA groups, environmental groups, not EPA, from environmental groups and small family farms, told Federal Appeals Court on Wednesday that the EPA failed to take into account the risks associated with dicamba before allowing Monsanto and some of those other companies to use the herbicide formulation in the 2017 growing season. So the EPA is facing a decision here in the coming weeks about what to do with the new formulation of dicamba and whether to extend the registration of that new low volatility formulation or if they should just nix using it altogether. Yes, and uh, we had a conversation with an agronomist. I won't name any names here, but he was a uh, uh, seed company agronomist, and he thinks we're going to be able to keep dicamba. The question is, in what capacity right? and what kind of restrictions will get put on state to state? Yeah, and if I mean, so one of the arguments, right, last year was that guys were using old formulations on new Extendamax type of beans, right, Mike? Yes, yes, exactly. That was that was a theory that was posited by some of the dicamba retailers. So that just kind of adds a whole new layer of confusion to the dicamba pro- to the dicamba problem or dicamba 
whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, it does, because, you know, those old formulations of dicamba are still perfectly acceptable for use in burn down. They're great for use in pastures, killing broadleaf weeds, and there's no sense in charging extra money for a product that's going to go down on a pasture. However, those products are still dicamba, and if you are trying to cut costs and save a few pennies, as a lot of growers are today, boy, it, it can save you a lot of money to use mm -hmm. that in your extend beans. But then, of course, you're going to deal with drift, and that's potentially one of the issues. Yes, one of the issues for sure. Yes. Well, as long as we're talking soybeans, um, you know, one of the things we talk about quite a bit, of course, has been on everybody's mind here at the Farm Progress Show, is what's going to happen to bean acres this next year in the U.S.? Prices are down. Corn looks pretty good. Are we going to see growers move away from corn and move them back into beans? And part of that challenge is because beans are very cheap to buy out of South America. The Brazilian real and the Argentine peso have both been falling quite a little bit, making their products cheaper to buy for other countries like China or the EU. We got some more bad news today from South America. The Argentinian Central Bank hiked interest rates to 60%. Our interest rates, folks, remember, were at like one and a quarter percent. Argentina is now at 60% interest rates. They continue to have an economic crisis brought on in a large part by the drought they suffered this past year, which agriculture funds about a third of the Argentinian government. That has caused the peso to collapse. Today, it closed at a record low against the U.S. dollar. Right now, $1 will buy you 39.25 pesos, which is the, the lowest or the cheapest, I should say, the Argentinian peso has ever been against the U.S. dollar. And that just means that's another uh, bearish factor mm -hmm. weighing on the soybean market as we sit here today. So that is certainly a headwind. We're going to be grappling with within agriculture for, oh gosh, hopefully not too much longer. But economic crises can sometimes take a while to dig their way out of. Yeah, absolutely can, Mike. Let's see. I'm going to switch gears here and talk about the farm bill because that's also coming up here on the docket. Um, the uh, House Agriculture or the House Senate Agriculture Committee met for several hours yesterday, and Senate Ag Chairman Pat Roberts said he's confident that they're going to get a lot of progress made by September 5th, which is when they want to have a a draft of the bill, basically between the Senate and the House, finished or or put together to present at the conference committee. And they're going to hold their first committee meeting, their first public committee meeting September 5th when lawmakers and the public, I believe, will be allowed to make formal comments. And of course, they're still trying to get it put into place by September 30th. But I didn't realize this. The Farm Bill has 12 different entities that they need to, or 12 different titles that they need to finish up here by September 30th. Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly not something simple to put together, but we did hear from Secretary Purdue yesterday about his take on the Farm Bill. And Delaney, let's drop that in right here. This was Secretary Purdue at the Farm Progress Show yesterday talking about whether or not we need a Farm Bill immediately. Everyone would like to certainty with the, with the anxiety over trade and where we're going there. Everyone would like to have the Farm Bill uh, done uh, prior to September expiration. I know that both House and Senate and the administration 
is anxious to get that done. We've got a pretty good gulf between us though right now based on some issues, but the, the conferees are meeting. I'm still hopeful that we can get it done. They are, they're asking USDA from time to time, uh, what happens if we do this? What happens if we do that? We provide that kind of technical assistance for them. So I think they're working hard. They understand that farmers need uh, need an answer. They need to be able to plan going forward. The good news is I think it's going to be evolutionary rather than revolutionary. By and large, most production ag people are pretty comfortable. There's some tweaks. Our dairy product didn't do as well. Uh, we tried to patch that up with the market protection program, margin protection program. Farm Bureau is coming out with the program. So I think you'll see more of the same. There will be a little tweaking over CRP issues and others, conservation titles. But by and large, the corpus is going to be much what they've been used to. And while Secretary Purdue was here, he was also asked quite a few questions, as you would imagine, about NAFTA. And, of course, we yes. had the U.S.-Mexico agreement earlier this week, and now Canada is mixed into that fray. They have had, uh, according to several sources, good discussions so far. Christia Freeland said that they have been working very, very hard by different officials, and they worked mm -hmm. late into the night last night on a number of different issues. And Christia Freeland, who is the uh, Canadian Foreign Minister, said she's looking very much forward to reviewing that work with Ambassador Lighthizer today. She says there's a lot of goodwill, and what we're trying to do in a short period of time, and it's working very intensely. So that sounds fairly positive, I think. Yeah, I was also reading some news from NAFTA negotiations today too, Mike, and it sounds like they had some productive conversations yesterday. And President Trump basically just said, look, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, here's what we've put together with Mexico. Just sign this. You know, we can change a couple pieces, but this is a good agreement. Let's get it done because tomorrow is really the, the deadline that we're looking to get something signed by to to uh, open that 60-day period for, what is it, Congress to look through it and then the president to sign it. and Yes, and more importantly for Enrique Peña Nieto to be able to sign it down in Mexico. Right. That's kind of the sticking point, that the, the clock that's ticking, yeah. I guess I should say. Yeah. Apparently, um, Christia Freeland did credit, quote, significant compromises from Mexico that had been some of the issues that they were watching there between Mexico and Canada. So I don't know. We could see a deal, I guess, agreed upon tomorrow. So. Well, maybe. And here is one of the issues that continues to be driving the conversation with Canada, and that is the dairy industry. There seems to be yeah. a, some misconception or at least some different types of reporting going on about what would happen to the Canadian dairy industry if NAFTA is renegotiated as it stands today. And so Reuters has been up in Manitoba and in Montreal. They've been talking to Canadian dairy farmers, and there is a lot of concern amongst these Canadian dairy farmers that they may have to give up their uh, price control system, their supply management system in Canada if they re-sign NAFTA. And this is making them as an industry very, very nervous. And of course, the Canadian dairy industry has been very adept politically. They have been able to maintain this uh, price control, uh, supply control model for, for decades. And they they have a, a lot of influence politically. And so Reuters says, you know, this is a huge deal. So they're talking to one young Canadian dairy producer. She says, I have a lot of debts, and we really hope there will be no concessions. But Canada is under mm -hmm. pressure to reach a new NAFTA deal with the U.S., as you said, by Friday. And so that is certainly uh, 
yeah. making some folks a little nervous. Secretary Purdue did also address this issue yesterday, and here is his take on uh, what they would like to see the Canadian dairy industry give up in order to be a part of NAFTA again. As you know, he's talked about the 250 to 300 cents tariffs there. We're not asking Canada to do away totally with their supply management system, but if they're going to continue, we want them to manage the supply. And that's essentially what happened when they started dumping this Class 7 milk on the international market with the press war, uh, prices. And actually, that helped our farmers and our dairymen. And put, it put a lot of pressure on there and a lot of stress price-wise across the country overall. So I'm hopeful from the news earlier this morning and from talking with Ambassador Lighthizer yesterday that we're going to get uh, a good agreement for agriculture with uh, Canada. All right. Well, interesting comments Secretary Purdue had, and it was interesting to me today. I was speaking to a group of kind of ag retailers. They work in the precision ag retail space, but one of their questions was, okay, great. I'm glad we've got this worked out now with Mexico, but really, is agriculture getting anything out of this? Like, are we getting ahead or are we getting anything new out of this deal as opposed to the old version of NAFTA or is it just manufacturing and the automotive industry of course they got some huge concessions and gains but yeah I thought that was a valid question well it you know from ag's perspective with the exception of dairy especially in regard to Canada you know, there's not much we could gain we were already tariff free in right. all directions on uh, on most other commodities dairy. We had geographic indicators in Mexico that could have been an issue with Europe and of course the supply management program in Canada which just like Secretary Purdue says the administration isn't pushing them to get rid of. Let's just go back to the way things were before uh, Canada monkeyed around with their class 7 class 8 milk program. Right yeah I know. This is in interesting how uh, ag seems to take you know one of the biggest hits commodities wise but don't really get anything, I guess, other than maybe a little more market stability out of it in the long run. Well, well, any fingers crossed on that market stability. Uh, in the meantime, what do you say? Should we jump over and see what the markets are doing before we talk to our friends at CAMSO? Let's do that, Mike. All right, folks, and our markets are brought to us by our good friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, you can get that high-quality market analysis and partnership in trading by calling them at 312-277-0050 or by visiting them on the web at zaner.com. We've got red pretty well all down the screen in the grain markets. In corn, the September contract was down a quarter at 341 even. December unchanged on the day at 356 and a half. Soybeans weren't pulled too much lower by that news out of Argentina. The September contract down three and three quarter cents at 819 and a half. November down four and a half cents to close at 831 and a half. In Chicago wheat that September contract down seven and three quarters closed at 508 even December down six and three quarters to finish at 535 even the looking over at the world of livestock we've got green on the screen in the cattle complex August live cattle up 62 and a half cents at 109.80 the October contract up 37.50 to close at 109.07 and a half in feeder cattle the August contract up 15 cents at 149.47.50 the September up a dollar closed at 150.17 and a half and in lean hogs, the October contract, oh, down $2.42.5, finished at $49.12.50. The December, down $1.10 to close at $52.62 and a half. Quick look over at the dairy market. Delaney and I supported dairy with some homemade ice cream yesterday. 
the September Class 3 milk contract dropped 10 cents. We didn't help all that much, I guess, Delaney. Closed the day at 16.38, while October was down a nickel to finish at 16.55. Well, let's jump in, learn a little bit more about tracks, and maybe what could happen as those tracks start to age a little bit with our friends at Camso. Well, it's the final day of the Farm Progress Show, and we are here once again with Martin Lunkenbein. And Martin, we are here, we are looking at a new product, an entirely new rubber compound you guys are rolling out. Tell us a little bit about it. Why did you guys develop this thing? Well, when we keep looking in the industry, we see what's going on. Tractors keep getting bigger, heavier, faster, and uh, farmers want to take them down the road. And as we all know, no farming equipment makes any money on the road. It makes money in the field. And so three years ago, we launched the first version of this road track, of uh, this uh, roading material. We saw the trend. We, it's still there. It's, uh, it's a reality. It's something that, that's out there. So uh, faced with some new challenges over the last uh, year or so, uh, we uh, sent it back to the engineering team, gave them a challenge, and they came back with this uh, brand new roading material that we've rolled out into our RD4500. So that fits right into our track lineup of 2545 and 6500. Uh, and we've come out with a new category within the 4500 family for the roading materials. So basically what it is, it's a material that's, uh, into, that has the capacity to uh, build up le less heat as it's going down the road, which we all know heat is a bit of a challenge for rubber in all applications. And so this now, it's, uh, we're going, we can go 50% faster than the previous version. So now um, CNH is going to be releasing to the market their new uh, road track version. That will be by the, the default option on that tractor. Uh, so it, by going 50% faster, so we now we can heat, hit the 25 miles an hour on the narrow tracks. And it's also uh, saving time to the farmer. We estimate about 16% uh, savings. So you're more time in the field making your money or getting ready to make the money and then spending it on the, on the road. So basically what we did, we took the same, roughly the same tread um, look geometry, uh, adapted it a little bit, changed uh, the materials inside, changed the, um, the construction of the track, of the main part of the track, and all those combinations together comes up with what we feel is the best roading track on the market today. You mentioned heat a little bit. I want to go back to that. Why is heat something that, I mean, you, you mentioned rubber, of course, yeah. it gets hot, but why focus on that specifically? Because that's what's changing the properties of the material as it heats up, and it accelerates some of the wear, uh, and which is exactly what we don't want to happen. We want to let the farmers go down the road as fast as they want slash can uh, to be able to get to the field. So basically... That's the challenge that we had in keeping that temperature down. So uh, that's what we've managed with this compound, and it, it keeps the properties there so we get the same life as you would at lower speeds, and we keep the uh, cost of operation in check uh, for the farmers so that they actually, you know, they're, they're in a business of making money just like everybody else, so we give them a product that helps them do that. Will you, will you tell me a little bit about the lifespan of this track design? Right. We're, what we're expecting is uh, the same life as what we had with in a regular application with our regular track. So you'll be getting in the 3,000 to 4,000, depending how many hours, how much roading you do, it varies. You know, it's a, always a tricky question that goes away. It depends, but uh, we're expecting the same kind of life that you get out of, uh, of a regular track, but this one is destined for roading. So, you know, we said we can go 50% uh, faster, 
and spend more time in the field. So that's where you're going to get your return. Now, eventually, Martin, you yeah. kind of alluded to it, these tracks are going to get worn down. Friction and science takes a toll on us all. You guys have developed a solution to that, haven't you, Cam? Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about your, your retread, relug, what do you want to call it? Refreshing? So, uh, remanufacturing. Remanufacturing. So Cam self-certified remanufactured tracks. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's something we launched uh, about a year ago, uh, bringing to the market where we will uh, be taking tracks back. We've already started. We're very active in that uh, Really, the trend is positive. It's really getting more and more interest for it. So we're taking it back, and as long as uh, you know the carcass or the center part of the track, the casing is in good shape, we'll be able to take that track back, tear it down, bring take back the remaining tread materials, and build it back up, and offer you a remanufactured track. So it can be a remanufactured track off the shelf. Or we can remanufacture your, your, your specifically if you want. So it's as, as, as you see fit. But our distribution network is offering them off the shelf. So if you would like to, if you, you know, a little more price sensitive or cost sensitive at a certain time, or you have an older uh, tractor, uh, you can get, go look at remanufacturing, and uh, then we can, uh, we can offer you that product as well. So it's expanded, uh, expanded our offering as well. For the remanufactured track, what what would a what should a grower expect pricing-wise versus a new? Well, we're we're roughly uh, if I'm off the top of my head, we're yeah. we're about at we're cheaper than our 2,500 level. Okay. So we're we're around around that level or a little bit below, depends on the track uh, track you're buying. Uh, but so you're it's really at the more at the entry level, and it really. Um, like I said, if you're a little more sensitive to cost at that particular, is it a question of tractor age or a question of time, where you are uh, at that point in time, then uh, it becomes a solution for you as well. Martin, we've kind of got to hear the gamut here of products and uh, the history behind CAMSO. What does the next five years look like for you guys? Uh, more tracks, obviously more and more tracks. We see the trend growing. Uh, there are applications out there. As we look at what applications are created, affecting the field more there are more opportunities there uh, you know the tractors are still getting bigger what we're hearing there we're not at the end of that that end yet as they go with higher horsepower there'll be more uh, more opportunities there and as it you know when I started in this business 15 years ago it was really uh, very very unique or individual applications now it's much more uh, common much more accepted and it's just it's growing incredibly strong every year Folks, if you want to see the CAMSO tracks in action, check out the Ag News Daily Twitter feed. We posted a video on Tuesday of the tracks on a quad track combine running through a field. And, uh, you know, maybe it got a little bit of mud. Be sure to check that out. But before we do that, Martin, where should folks go if they want to get more information or get in touch with a dealer? Well, you can go to directly to our website, CAMSO.co. And right there you can find all the contact points for our uh, distribution. And, uh, and you can also go to our help desk. Right on the website, there is the email address and direct contact for the help desk. They'll be able to give you all the information you need and direct you to the right people as well. Martin Lukenbein, thank you so much for your time this week. Very welcome. Thank you. All right. Well, again, a big thank you to CAMSO and a big thank you for being our sponsor this week at the Farm Progress Show. However, the conversation from Farm Progress Show doesn't end there. As Mike said earlier, we're going to be talking to Kevin Rossnell, who is with National Corn Growers Association talking a little bit here about corn yields what he's 
looking at over the year, and most importantly, what he thinks and what National Corn Growers thinks of this new farmer assistance program that got rolled out on Monday. Well, we are still here at the Farm Progress Show in Boone, Iowa, and I have gathered, and Delaney has actually wrangled up for us, Kevin Ross. He is on the board of the National Corn Growers Association. He's a farmer in Underwood, Iowa. He's active in the biofuels world as well. So, Kevin, we just heard you talk, and we overheard you. You said you're going to Japan next week. What's going on? What's bringing you to Japan, and how's that going to help corn growers here in this country? Yeah, I'm headed there uh, with a delegation on a, on a trade servicing mission for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Uh, a lot of corn is exported, you know, through uh, beef and pork, and uh, we're going there talking to some of the largest buyers uh, in Japan, and uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna see how our products are being marketed there uh, as a cattle producer, which uh, you also are, Mike. I know, uh, you know, as a cattleman, it's always you know fun to see your product overseas as well. Okay, I've got to open the door to this because. Obviously, we had the trade assistance package that rolled out. Corn growers didn't seem super, maybe happy is not the best word to put it, but, but maybe they didn't get the most money. I mean, they got a, a penny per bushel. What, what are the thoughts there? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a very small amount of dollars going to corn in the grand scheme of things. And, and uh, really, for what's your uh, you know, largest crop in the U.S., it's, um, uh, it's a little bit of a hard pill to swallow. But, uh, you know, it, Really, what we're looking for is these markets to get opened, and uh, uh, whether it's a penny or a, a dime or whatever, at the end of the day, we need the, the markets and the trade happening, and uh, all these disruptions or these um, uh, damaging, you know, type talk on, on tariffs and things like that. It's it's uh, that's the stuff that's really hurting the market, and, and um, you know, they obviously recognize that, but the you know the point is we got to get to work on these things, get these agreements in place, and and uh, you know, and either either fix the ones that they want fixed. Um, or at least get them moving. And uh, bilateral, trilateral, I don't care if it's multilateral, we want it done. Now, Kevin, from NCGA's perspective, what can you guys do to help work with our international partners? How does the NCGA try to keep these things going for the American farmer? Sure. So uh, at National Corn, you know, we're, we're the policy arm. Um, and so we're in D.C. obviously lobbying on, on all these types of efforts. But we work very, very closely with the U.S. Grains Council. Our offices in D.C. are actually, uh, are, they're, they're right next to each other. They're basically the same office. Um, so our folks, uh, you know, that are there working every day on behalf of corn farmers um, are, are talking to those folks on the policies that we need, um, you know, here in the U.S. And also, we you know, we're learning about the, the issues that are, uh, affecting farmers, you know, in other countries, and also just affecting our markets when we're exporting there. So, uh, you know, we're always uh, trying to stay, you know, one foot ahead and in, in, uh, or one step ahead of these issues. And uh, we do our best to work with those grains council folks to, to make that happen. When you look at expanding markets, you mentioned you're going to Japan next week. Any other big trips planned, or or countries that you're having an open dialogue with about getting U.S. corn into their markets? You know, uh, later on we'll have an officer mission for uh, National Corn and, and Grains Council uh, this this fall, um, and we're going to be headed to Mexico. Um, and and certainly we're we're hopeful we'll be celebrating a lot of really good news there in, in the trade agreement. And um, you know that ag is either uh, uh, held harmless from what it was before, or maybe we're going to get a few uh, a few bonuses and you know with with uh, some of the other you know dairy industry things like that in, in Canada when they come back in. But hopefully in that that Mexico mission here later in the fall. 
uh, we'll be able to you know have some good dialogue with those those Mexican buyers and, and uh, Mexican uh, trade officials down there. So looking forward to that. Um, there's lots of markets that that uh, the Grains Council and uh, Meat Export Federation they're they're working for folks every day all around the world and and I think that's one of the things that our farmers need to hear is that uh, you know you've got people there 24 hours a day selling your products and uh, and working on these policies. Now, Kevin, one market that is a third of all U.S. corn consumed is the ethanol market. We had Scott Walker issuing, you know, exemption after exemption for small refiners. Now there's been a change. We've got Andrew Wheeler in there. You guys, have you talked to him? Have you interacted with him? What's your take on Andrew Wheeler? And are we going to get ethanol demand back up to where it should be before these exemptions were all issued? Yeah, you know, Scott Pruitt was uh, a little, little rough for uh, for our industries there, and uh we're, you know, we're hopeful that, that uh, Mr. Wheeler will, will um, you know, take the RFS a, a, at the face value of what it was meant to be and uh, really, really work hard to um, implement it in the way Congress intended. Yeah, that's, that's really all we're asking. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we kind of believe it's a simple, simple uh, ask. But, um, uh, you know, so far we haven't seen a whole lot of change there uh, since he's taken over. But... Um, we're, we're going to keep trying. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to, you know, keep digging on this issue. And, and uh, you know, two billion plus gallons though is a lot of gallons that they have, that they have just waved off, uh, off the map here for us. And, um, you know, for a for a corn grower, that's that's as hard to pill to swallow as all these trade issues. And and it should be because that's that's real demand that's that's been hurt. And um, we need that that fixed. Administrator Wheeler was at the Iowa State Fair a couple of weeks ago, and a lot of producers got the chance from different commodity organizations to talk to him, and a lot of the sentiment afterwards was that he didn't understand the mechanics of the RFS. Have you had the same opinion about Administrator from the National Corn Growers Association? Uh, you know, I, I haven't had a conversation directly with Mr. Wheeler yet, um, so I, I would hate to, hate to pass judgment on his, uh, on his processing of the, uh, of the RFS, but um, as I said, I, we're going to be working hard, no matter who's in that position. I don't care whether it's whether it's a, a, a Wheeler or a, or a Pruitt or, or a, you know whoever's next. Um, you know, we worked hard on it when when Lisa Jackson was in there, and and uh, I'm, there's somebody in between there I'm missing, but we 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 worked awfully hard on these, this issue uh, for a long time. And we're going to continue to do that as long as it's uh, uh, a big part of our markets. So it's it's huge for corn, huge for uh, the producers in the state of Iowa, as well as every corn producer across the nation. Kevin, before we let you go, how are crops looking, Western Iowa? They standing up straight still? We uh, we've dealt with some wind issues in Southwest Iowa. There's if you drive west on 80 from here, um, yeah, you're going to see a lot of damage, and uh, it's it's there's going to be a lot of folks that are I think a little bit disheartened by the time they get out there and, and get in the fields, and and nobody likes combining down corn. That's never any fun. Um, but yeah, a lot of snap, um, and and aside from that, you know, it's just uh, there were some nitrogen issues that were out there, some stress issues that you're seeing. Um, I don't know. It's going to be really interesting. There's going to be some great corn, and there's going to be some stuff that uh, is a little bit disappointing. So that's why we have the crop insurance program. That's why we're always fighting to keep that thing in place, and and uh, we need we need that program as well. So hey, we're uh, we're here to fight for those things for farmers. Well, we certainly appreciate your time today at the Farm Progress Show. Kevin, thanks so much. Thank you, Delaney. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate being on. Well, Delaney, there we go. That was Kevin Ross. I really enjoyed talking to him. He's a great guy with a great perspective, and he's always smiling. You know, he's just a friendly guy. 
He is very angry. And, you know, one of the things that he mentioned there, that, that uh, bailout package, quote, unquote, as it relates to corn, really wasn't a whole lot of money. Secretary Purdue did address that a little bit, what the package looks like, why it was created in the way it was, and, and what could happen going forward. So let's get Secretary Purdue's thoughts there and kind of balance that out a little bit. What do you say? Let's do it. Not any kind of county average or anything like that. So you have to prove the yields over any of the payments. But uh, going forward, it's based on uh, what is the trade damage, tariff damage actually calculated. That's why you see the difference between the soybean award and the corn award because of the tariff damage. We had to calculate this in a legal fashion where we could defend it before the WPO courts. Well, there we go, folks. That wraps up our coverage here at the Farm Progress Show. However, we still have plenty of interviews with fantastic product creators, with incredible innovators in the world of agriculture. We'll be bringing that to you again next week. So we are not quite finished yet. However, Delaney, if folks missed one of our episodes and they want to tune back in, where should they go? They can find us online to find any of our previous episodes at agnewsdaily.com, or they can find us on social media. We're always sharing pictures and quotes and fun stuff there. If they find us on Facebook and Twitter, it's at Ag News Daily. With that, Mike, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.